You are now entering a world. A world beyond the reach of the average eye. A world filled with wondrous imagination. Where good and evil are an epic struggle. An everlasting fight. Where courage and bravery lurk around every corner. And the magic of the mind is unleashed. Welcome to Avery World. On the last episode of Avery World Stories, Jane waits for the warrant to be signed. She goes to visit her mother, who finally gives her words of encouragement and tells her to bring down Father Morris. Little does she know, the raid is already underway. By the time Jane gets the call, Morrison's in handcuffs. Chief Roberts tells her they won't get Morrison, but they can get Brother Charles. Jane goes one-on-one with Charles in the cell. He damn near scares her half to death, but confesses that she gets it all on tape. But doesn't matter, but the Charles is released by Bishop Plank. At least that's what they think, until they find out that Sister Joan is the one who released Brother Charles. And all the police were moved to a different convent. Now the nuns are exposed, Brother Charles and Sister Joan are on the loose, and Jane Danger Chief Roberts and Father Morrison are all on their way to stop nine murders. Wait till Chief Roberts' police car. Of course, Morrison was put in the back seat. Roberts drove with fury towards the commissary hoping to stop Charles before it was too late. We got time, right? I said loudly so that Morrison could hear me. He's not going to kill until Sunday. That's two weeks. How am I supposed to know? He fired back with vulgarity. You better start knowing something. Roberts yelled back. You released this monster, you need to handle him. He's an unstable man. That time bomb. The two weeks is from biblical scripture. Has 14 ends in four for the holy number. But it doesn't mean he, can, he can't stray when a certain detective puts the screws to him. I'm a private eye. No, you're a consultant. Roberts chimes in. You didn't want him to kill all these people, did you? It was only supposed to be Father Connolly and Johnson. Not their followers. I said back to Father Morrison. Oh, we want members of the congregation killed. Morrison went on, still saying things in such a way to make sure they are not confessions. Our concern are the people spreading this new age heresy, not those falling for the act. So this numbers game, this multiplied by three, is just Charles' own doing? Roberts asked him. It would seem that way, Morrison said. We arrived at the commissary to see nothing but darkness. No police, no FBI, and no nuns. Robert parked the car and we all exited. I ran straight to the door and tried it. Locked from the inside. Shit! Easy, he said to me. No one's been murdered yet. How do you know? I asked him, scolding his all-too-out-of-place optimism. Does it look like a place where nine people have been killed? I wanted to refute his claim, but then I looked at the place. It was dark, sure, but it was calm. Too calm. No sign of any distress inside. 
But where that gave Robert's comfort, it gave me hesitation. I don't know if he could tell I wasn't sure about his words of hope. Or if he wasn't secure in his own beliefs, but he tried the door. That showed me his heart was pumping after all. He wasn't so confident anymore. I think we both had grown attached to not just this ongoing civil war that the church has found itself in, but in the lives of these nuns. Not just because their deaths may sway the war and destroy our lives, but also their lives. We hold them in our hands as if they were our friends or even more, our families. This, as I have come to know it, is the burden of the protector. The investigator, the detective, the cop, and even the journalist. You go out looking for a story, but what you find is a life. One that may have been ruined by some tragic event of others or their own wrongdoings or one on the very verge of collapse. You often find yourself getting swept away in the stakes of another, seeing the world through their eyes and sensing that if they were to fall to ruin, you would not be able to recover. This, of course, is the curse that drives all who dare to stand in the way of one person in the proverbial smoking gun. As Roberts looked around for something to break the door in with, I noticed that Father Morrison was gone. Oh shit! I thought I said take it easy. No, look! He turns to see what I see. A missing person. Oh shit. Where could he have gone? You didn't cuff him to the car? You told me to cuff him. You didn't say to what? Let's spread out and find him. He's not the type to make a run for us, so there's gotta be another way inside. And that's when it hit me. I thought back to my first night here at the commissary. To the thing that gave Mother Margaret and Sister Gladys pause. The wine cellar. What? No time to explain, come on! I yelled as I ran off, and he ran after me. When we got to the wine cellar, which I admit took us a little longer than I thought to find, it was lit by a light bulb, leaving most of the place in darkness. The wine barrels all shelved, neatly packed, the bottles lined the walls. I entered first to the dark, dank cellar. Roberts followed me. This is when he drew his gun. And that's when I remembered I never got my gun back after handing it over at the police station. This would be the second time in as many tries that I would be walking into a life-threatening situation nearing the end of a case, and I didn't have my gun. And both because of cops. After a few minutes in the cellar, I looked around for a hatch, but I couldn't for the life of me find one. The place was quiet, so quiet that the scurrying of rats nearly made Roberts pull his trigger. But it was also the rats that made me notice a small thread hanging from the ceiling. If one wasn't paying attention, it almost looked like a spider web. As I got closer, the thickness of it would reveal itself. I pulled the thread and the hatch opened above me. Now I'm thinking, who would install this? There's already two sheltered doors leading in and out. This hatch isn't big enough to fit a barrel of wine. Now this was put in for a purpose. There's a reason that Mother Margaret and Sister Gladys didn't think of this in the beginning. There was no purpose for it. They probably never even used it. Forgot it was even here. But when they remembered, that's when they remembered. Father Morrison did the renovations. He also did the cutting. The rope, the only way to pull oneself up to the hatch door that at least five feet above me lies at my feet. I'll give you a boost. 
Robert said from behind me and I nearly punched him. I can't tell you how frail your nerves become in the dark. You're not sending me up there without a gun. It's a bunch of priests. I probably have the only gun here. Still, we're wasting time. Let's go. And with that, he gave me a rather forceful push and I climbed up. Then we were faced with a bigger problem. He towered over me. How was I going to pull him up? And he's too old to jump five feet and pull himself up. Open the front. Give me your gun. Why? Because you're outside. Don't shoot anybody. He said as he tossed me the gun. No promises. I said as I journeyed down the fluorescent hallway. The light still spread out, leaving me in darkness for at least four or five steps in the light for three. It's a funny feeling being under the light. It makes you feel safer than in the darkness. But the funniest thing about that is that when you're in the darkness, you can see the light ahead. When you're under the light, all you can see is the darkness. Before I knew it, I was back in the kitchen. The stainless steel paradise as cold as being under the eye of a hurricane. That's what it felt like. Until a footstep that sounded like distant thunder reminded me of the coming storm. I must admit, I forgot to unlock the door for Roberts. But in this moment, all I could think of was saving those nuns' lives. I followed the distant sound of the footstep to a dark hallway. I couldn't see an inch in front of my face. I couldn't even see the gun in my hand. I wondered where it came from. There were so many directions I could go. Behind, forward, left or right. I was lost in this commissary. Then I heard it. Another footstep, distant down the hallway. Then another. Then another. They were spaced out at first, but then I could tell that it was someone running right towards me. They picked up speed, heading right at me. I couldn't see anyone or anything. I aimed my gun. That's when Sister Gladys came running out of the dark. Blood on her hands and clothes, panic in her eyes. She tried to speak, but couldn't. She was in shock. I examined her and it was clear it wasn't her blood. There wasn't a scratch on her body. Then a scream that was in the chill that would puck anyone's asshole came from the upstairs. There I was with the pistol, a shook nun, and not a clue what to do. I let Gladys to the door where I unlocked it and physically threw her on Roberts. She hurt? No, stay here. I said to him, it was foolish of me to go in alone. But one of us had to stay with Sister Gladys, and the other had to walk right into a ghastly situation. And I couldn't stand Gladys. As I stood at the bottom of the steps, I realized just what life could have been if I would have drove to the airport and got on that flight to California, and went to Disneyland. I could have been in the arms of the man I loved and loved me, watching fireworks pay homage to a 40-year-old mouse who loves children. Instead, I was climbing the steps to the unknown. The gun in my hand rattling, my breath still, my mind racing. Regretting every decision I have made that led me here. The silence interrupted by crying. I stopped. It was close. What made me stop was that it sounded like a man crying. And there would only be three men in the building. Roberts, Morrison, and Charles. And one of them I knew was downstairs. I rounded the corner to the tops of the steps and saw Charles kneeling over Father Morrison, crying his ever-loving eyes out. I walked closer, careful as not to make a sound too loud to disturb Charles' crying. 
no telling what a deranged man like him could do in this situation. As I got closer, I got a good look at Father Morrison. He was stabbed, bleeding bad from his neck and stomach. There was no way he was alive. I placed the barrel of my gun up against the back of Charles' head. This caused him to stop crying. What did you do, Charles? I asked him. I tried to stop her. You did this? No! He nearly shouted as he turned around and I pulled back my hammer. The look in his eyes ingrained in my brain. His red pupils. Dried tears lined his face. Almost as if he couldn't believe I was going to shoot him. How could you? I said, finding the sight of Morrison's dead body too much to bear. Though he may have been the mastermind behind this, he was still good to me and more importantly to my mother. That meant something. No. A weak whisper came into the room. For a second I was frozen. We were alone and it couldn't have come from Morrison unless his ghost had joined us. Then he coughed and blood came pouring out of his mouth. But so did breath. I nearly shoved Charles to the ground, getting to the father. Hold on, father. No, no. My time has ended on this earth, my child. He said, coughing with nearly every breath. But the Lord has given me one last chance to make this right. <laughs> I tried to stop her. This gave me pause, as this was the same thing that Charles had just said. She's gone too far, Jane. What? Joan, he said weakly. Sister Joan's the one doing the killings, isn't she? I never meant for it to go this far. <coughs> one death is turned into eighteen. You have to stop the monster I've created, he said. With his last breath, I gripped his hand tight, feeling the warmth leave his body. He may have been misguided, but he was a teacher standing up for what he believed in. That's as disturbing as that may seem. My sorrow was increasing, almost too much to bear. I turned it into anger, looking over at Charles, who I could easily see has done the same. Where is she? I followed Charles where it felt like miles. But it was only a few minutes or so. I don't know why I was so overtaken by grief at Father Morrison's death. A murderer getting murdered should have given me a sense of justice. But I felt robbed of it all the same. I felt as if I was going to stop anyone from dying here tonight. He led me back down the steps and where Roberts joined us. He, we went straight to the chapel. He opened the doors to see all eight remaining nuns kneeling at the foot of the altar. I ran in, hoping to get the Mother Margaret relieved that she was even alive. Jane, no! Roberts yelled out, but it was too late. That's when a large presence came and grabbed me. Agent Sparks, I said without even looking up. He was hiding behind the door. I told you not to intervene in a federal investigation, he said, as I noticed he held me at gunpoint. Drop it, he said, referencing my gun. I let it slip out of my finger and hit the ground. Now that we're all here. That shrill, high-pitched voice came from the altar, and as Sparks turned me around, I could see Sister Joan standing above the nuns, blood basically dripping off of her chin and onto the altar floor, making for a ghastly sight. The blood of Father Morrison. This sight was too much for Charles to bear. You charlatan! 
He yelled as he made his way to the altar. I could tell this move shocked Joan and Sparks both. Sparks followed him with his aim, but didn't pull the trigger, and Joan did her best to keep that confident smile on her face as he approached her. You defiled the faith. Enough, Charles, she said, cutting him off. You know what God has called me to do. Not his, he said, cutting her off right back. You defiled my faith. You betrayed me. Father Morrison was to be left untouched. You were supposed to be innocent. Into this, her smile grew. Into one of pure love. I couldn't tell if she truly loved Charles. But by the way, she placed both her bloody hands under his chin and lifted his head up to meet her eyes. I could tell how he could be confused. It wasn't supposed to end this way. He tells her. Oh, Charles. I know. She said, as she slit his throat. Into this, I must admit, I've seen people beaten don't enter their life. I've seen people get shot and I've even seen dead bodies fresh. And just moments before this, I witnessed Father Morrison slip away right before my very eyes. But this sight would be such a disturbing one that I couldn't bear to watch the entire scene. All I heard was his desperate gasp, grasping for any bit of air that his lungs could muster as they filled up with blood. Watching someone die in front of you, even if they're not actually watching, is a slow and painful sight that never escapes one's memory. The mixed emotions I felt over the death of Brother Charles, who from up until this moment was seen as a cold-blooded killer, but in reality was just a man in love with a woman, asking her to love him. And she twisted his love into a scapegoat that she no longer needed. Then she disposed of him. How could you do this? Mother Margaret said, seething. You have betrayed the sanctity of the church and the holy order. I've betrayed it. Joan screamed out. No, mother, you've betrayed it. You spew your rhetoric preaching about equality, and you defile the very vows you once took. If God wanted us equal, he would have created us as equals. You are a devil woman, Margaret exclaimed. What you've done will never be forgiven by the Almighty. No need to worry about forgiveness when you're given a mission direct from God. And I will kill anyone who gets in my way. Father Morrison knew that. This wasn't about Father Morrison, was it? Now I spoke up, finally putting all the puzzle pieces in the right places. Those letters I found in his office, they were from you. Father Morrison sent me down this righteous path, but became squeamish. He came to me, prayed with me, told me that God had a purpose for me, but his purpose was only half the mission. Morrison wanted me to kill Father Connolly, but I said, why stop there? Cut off the head of the snake, two more grow in its place. So I chopped up the whole snake. And you were going to use Brother Charles' love for you, depending on him? Congratulations, Jane. You figured it all out. Father Morrison knew you would, which is why he hired you. To connect the pieces back to you. He wanted me to stop you. And look where that got you. You really should find another calling. She said as she walked up to Mother Margaret and placed the knife to her throat. The nuns started praying loud and fast. I wonder why they just didn't attack her. They outnumbered Joan, but then again, they did take a vow of nonviolence and Sparks is holding a gun. Then she looked up at me, and looking into Joan's eyes was as if looking directly into my own. It was a strange sensation to behold, to see the darkness she worked so hard to suppress, gleaming in all its glory. 
on full display for the world to see. It was as if I was looking at the alternate version of myself. One who had given up the promise to George Mead and decided that inspiring others had nothing to do with justice. Joan was too far gone at this point. I had to do something. I geared my leg back and gave Agent Sparks a vicious kick to the groin. I hope he felt every inch of my hamstring up under his crotch. He screamed in pain as I pushed myself out from under his grasp. Chief Roberts ran for his gun that was lying on the floor after I dropped it. I ran as fast as I could run, my sights locked on Sister Joan, her eyes and her smile locked back at me. But it was as if I was going in slow motion, as she pulled her knife across the throat of Mother Margaret and all I could think of was stopping her before she finished. She was halfway across her neck before she stopped. There have been many conflicting sides of this moment. I don't know which one I believe, and I don't know which one I expect you to believe. But as I watched Sister Joan go limp and fall to the floor, I couldn't believe my eyes. When I reached her body, she was lying on the altar, blood pouring from the back of her. An entrance wound right in the middle of her forehead. Her body flailed out across the altar steps, and I know it may seem too spiritual, but she was in some way stretched, like Jesus that stood before us on the cross. I turned my gaze to the statue of Christ that so resembled her, to see there was a bullet hole in his feet. I looked back to see both Sparks and Roberts holding their guns, both aimed towards the altar. Sparks was under the impression that he had shot Sister Joan. He says Roberts was too slow to the draw. By the time he picked up the gun, centered it, aimed it, and shot it, Joan was lying dead on the altar. Roberts, on the other hand, believes Sparks had the wrong angle for the shot, that his view of Joan was blocked by me and he was directly behind me, and there was no way that Sparks could have hit Joan. He contests that Sparks was actually trying to hit me and missed. I don't know which one to believe. I was too into my trance to hear where the gunshot came from, and to which direction the bullet flew by my head. All I know is that one of them shot Sister Joan, and one of them shot Jesus. Roberts turned his aim to Sparks, believing he was trying to hit me, of course. Drop it! He shouted, but Sparks ignored him. Damn it, Jane! Sparks said, shaking off the hit through his groin. You would have just waited one second, I had the drop on her. Then what took you so long? Roberts pressed. Oh, come off it! Sparks fired back as he pulled down his shirt, revealing a wire. I was getting everything I could. You were wearing a wire this entire time? Not this entire time. I had to wait for approval. He said, You let Father Morrison and Brother Charles die. I wasn't there when Morrison was killed, and I didn't think she was going to kill Charles right here on the altar. I thought he was in on it. Honestly, this was all second-hand knowledge, for I was so in a trance looking at Sister Jones and Brother Charles's bodies. These two horrific sights, the dead really do look more alive than the living. The only thing that broke me out of my trance was when Mother Margaret hit the floor. We all thought Joan was shot in enough time. We were wrong. The cut was deep and sliced nearly halfway across the center of her neck. I rushed to her, quickly placing my hand over the wound trying to stop the bleeding, but it was clear in an instant that it was of no use. She gently put her hand over mine and looked up at me grasping to what little life she had left. Stay with us, mother. Do not give up. Who's giving up, my child? She asked, and I was unsure if I was supposed to answer that or not. I am moving on. 
You should do the same. Don't live with demons, child. Live. And that was her last words. Sister Joan, Mother Margaret, Father Morrison, and Brother Charles were dead on arrival of the ambulance. I did my best to make it clear to the papers that Joan was the only killer here. I hope that not only saves Father Morrison and Brother Charles' reputations, but also eases my mind. Though I know it won't. I don't know what became of the ongoing battle for equality in the church, and at the time none of us knew where the war for equality in America would lead. But what I did know is that God may not have anything to do with the murders, but he had everything to do with stopping them. No one was able to link the case back to Bishop Plank, and of course, being one, if not the most powerful man in Vegas, that wasn't surprising. You can't get everybody rings out through my brain, even now. Chief Roberts did his best to get Charles filed on Agent Sparks for attempt at my murder, claiming that he was trying to kill me and not Joan. But he had a hard time trying to stick those charges, as both bullets came out of the same gun. And Sparks is a federal agent. Very appreciated by Hoover himself. Sister Gladys was promoted to the leader of the convent, and I mustn't say anything bad about a person of the cloth, though her voice still annoys me. When my consultant duties were done, Chief Roberts offered me a full-time position as a homicide detective. But my heart was in a different place. My heart was in L.A. I told him I'll be away for a while to figure some things out. He said the position is mine for as long as I wanted. And that was a dream I had longed to hear, but in this moment, I had the longing for another. My mother moved into our new house. It still had a few more weeks until the construction was completely finished, but we were able to get her settled in and I was able to get some sleep in an actual bed, not on the floor in my office. She says the house is a bit tacky, but she hasn't moved out, so that's a good sign. I went down to my office to pack up my things, most were going to my house. But the suitcase on the side of the room is headed for the airport. My mother came down with me to help me pack up my office and drive me to the airport. It's all over the morning papers, nationwide, David said on the other side of the phone. Honestly, I didn't want to hear anything about the case, but just hearing his voice made me smile. You're a nationwide hero, Jane Danger. They're speaking of you from New York to Seattle. <laughs> Let's hope not. Not excited? Thought this is what you wanted. He asked me. I didn't respond as I packed my last box. I looked down at the newspapers. The one on top had my very first ad on the back side. I smiled as I read it. That's the very ad that attracted George Meade to my doorstep and started me down this crazy journey. I thought I knew what I wanted back then. I guess I was wrong. I said as I pulled my pistol from my waistband and packed it into the box, sealing it up. I think I'm done with that life, I told David. Don't get me wrong, Jane. I'm glad you're coming out here, but what about the promise you made to George? He asked, and I hadn't thought of that since the night of Margaret's murder. That promise to go inspire hope to all through my pursuit of justice that George put in his last words to me that weighed heavy on my heart all summer. But now, I'm reading those words in a bit different light. Mother Margaret's words rang true to me as well. I needed to go after the life I wanted. Too long I felt trapped, controlled by an unfair, unjust system. Now it's time for me to try something new. I'm going to start a life with you, I told him. Isn't that inspiring enough? Then, there was a knock on the door. 
I'll call you at the airport. I said as I hung up the phone. My mother answered the door. None other than Agent Mark Sparks stood. I'm hoping I'm not disturbing you. I was just headed out of town. Chief told me I could find you here. Not a problem, Agent, I told him. My mother excused herself and gave us the room. You headed for the airport? You can ride with us. Actually, I'm only a short drive out. There's this cult out in the desert giving us trouble. Could I see what I can find? <laughs> Sounds like fun, I said with a chuckle, not meaning a word. I could use a partner. That made me laugh even harder. Didn't you try to arrest me? I scolded playfully. Do men just arrest me for fun? I arrested you because you were in the way of my investigation. Now I'm asking you to be a part of one. I'm headed to the airport. I'll be back for a while. Yeah, Robert told me. I'm happy for you. Found love and you're going for it. He said as he sat down on top of my desk. I would usually see that as a sign of disrespect, but seeing that there was nothing on top of it, I let it slide. Though I shot him a dirty look, and I knew he knew why. You don't sound like you're that supportive. Forgive me, I... You have something special, Jane. A drive, a brilliant unmatch. I've never seen anything like it. I had to get you out of my way before you solved my crime. Once I heard this other convent Father Morrison was moving us to, I knew Charles was going to strike market, so I stayed behind in the bushes. Isn't the whole point to solve the crime no matter who does it? The point is to be on the right team, and the FBI is the right team. We go after the big fights. I know you don't need the money, but the pay is good. When's the last time you've seen your wife, Agent? I asked him, proving my point right there. It's been a few months. Got a couple little ones, too, he said. Little ones? I'm surprised because he was in his sixties. I got some older ones, too. He said with a chuckle. That's the price we pay. But justice can't wait. I think it can. You know, last month, George Meade sacrificed his life after getting revenge 20 years in the making. In his last letter to me, he made me promise to continue to inspire others by pursuing justice. As I look at my life now, I don't think I can do that. I can spend my whole life chasing down bad guys and never make the world a safer place. Or, I can take the chance to be happy. I said to him as I headed for the door. You can see yourself out. And you're a good man, Sparks. Don't be afraid to call. I got to the doorway before he stopped me with one word. Amsterdam. I turned around, not sure why he just said that. One of my first missions was during the war. I saw some dastardly things, things you don't forget. Told my boss I was done as soon as the plane landed. A few months later... That German bastard was still terrorizing the rest of Europe. I couldn't sit back and just let that man get away with this. Not when I could do something. He said to me, standing up, Take your break, Jane. Go be with the man you love. I wish you the best, I really do. You're right. Trouble will always be there. But so will I. He said, as he gave me a hug and left, leaving me with my box. I could tell he wanted me to chase after him, but I didn't. I walked in my car, got in the passenger seat, let my mother drive me to the airport. Why, you ask? Why not go to the desert? Why give up my career, break my promise to George? The answer is simple. I can't let others control what I do. Living or dead, they have their visions for my life.
Robert Sparks, Mother, George, Morrison, Margaret, all have their opinions on what I should be doing. But I have to ask myself what I want to do. And that answer is deep in my heart and soul. And I only need to be quiet to hear it. For the first time in a long time, I prayed on it. And I believe God spoke to me. Told me to go to the airport. But as I've learned, the devil can sometimes sound like God. Only time will tell. Thank you for listening to Jane Danger and Two Weeks to Kill. On the next episode of Avery World Stories, I crack open the greatest novel ever written in Avery World. In the heart of the city. A scintillating tale about five people penetrating the underground world of New York City. Stay tuned for a riveting tale of addiction, love, loss, heartbreak, and spirituality.